uh, with the text that we go through. You know, Father's Day is not a church holiday. Uh, it, it's just not. Um, and, and if it was, I wouldn't be preaching a topical sermon for it anyway, because that's just, I, I forget about it until the day of. Um, so we're, we, we just go through books of the Bible, and on Father's Day we come to a passage where the first words are a father saying, my little children. Verse 1. Go ahead and follow along in your own Bibles. Verse 1 of First John chapter 2. My little children, these things I write to you uh, that, so that you may not sin. Lost my place already. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly, the love of God is perfected in him. Amen. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Jesus, we pray again, be thou my vision. Um, Lord, we, we look to you. Um, we look to you as, as uh, the only thing worthy of an, e an eternity's gaze. Um, we pray that we would be able to worship around this passage and the truths here that you've shared with us. I thank you for the book of 1 John. I thank you for uh, a church that I get to study it with. Um, I pray Jesus, that we would see glimpses past the book, past the words on the page, uh, be able to hear things past what I am preaching here, and that we would be able to truly meet with the author of this book, that we'd be able to meet with you, God, um, our Father, and Jesus, our Advocate, Holy Spirit, let these things be true. Amen. Amen. Um, it's a good text. It's a good text. I better not mess it up. Um, for uh, <laughs> For a little bit of context, go ahead and glance back at verse 9, because verse 9 was good too. And I said I was going to start with this one last week. Um, even though we studied it last week, it's, 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 a, it's a good verse. It's a good verse, and it kind of helps us know where we're coming from. In verse 9 of chapter 1, these well-known words, it says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's cool. And now 1 John chapter 2 starts with sin. It deals with sin. And this is a topic that began in the first chapter, of course. We talked about this last week, about how sin is a, is a struggle for everyone alive. Uh, it's one that we will lose without help. Um, and we, we saw how confession, the right way to deal with sin, that's antithetical to our natural selves. We don't do that naturally. We're not good at it. We always try instead to excuse sin, belittle sin, mask sin, reduce sin, call it something that it isn't. And the Bible says, confess it, then forsake it. That's Proverbs 28, verse 17. That's what you do with sin. You confess it, call it what it is, and then you forsake it. So we're, we're not talking about something fun. This isn't a feel-good message. Um, but we're talking about something important and certainly applicable because we're a bunch of sinners. Correction is not fun, but it is absolutely necessary, precisely because it is a problem that every single person must absolutely deal with. So we're talking about sin, and John says, I'm writing this so that you'd sin less, please, uh, so that you'd stop sinning. 
And that's great, but we need to especially notice the way John talks about sin. It's really important. When we talk about sin, we can be on a pendulum swing. It's very easy to get on, on, a, um, uh, on this path of extremes where your attitude towards sin is either too permissive or uh, too punitive. Just had to come up with a word that started with a P, right? Punish. Think punish. Okay? Usually, if it's, if it's our sin, we're very permissive, right? It's not really that bad. It's not that bad. Been doing it my whole life. I must be good at it by now. It's good to, you know, everyone needs a hobby. Um, you know, we're, 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 we're very permissive when it's our own sin, and then when it's someone else's sin, we say, this sin invites the wrath of God. Punishment is demanded. And I'm okay if I'm the one to deal it out. Okay? And, and John talks about sin seriously, very seriously, and compassionately. He speaks about sin very realistically, and he avoids these extremes almost by addressing both of them just in the same breath. He has already made it very clear that sin is a universal problem. He said that when we belittle our sin, we're just sinning more. Like when you say you don't sin, you're a liar. And guess what? That's a sin. So you, you just can't get away. But and to say we don't have sin, it's not just that we're lying. We're actually calling God a liar. Man, that brings your sin up to a whole nother level. So there's seriousness here. He's not excusing sin or equating forgiveness with a license to sin. Remember Paul writing to the Romans in Romans 6. He says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Obvious answer, certainly not. And John is saying the same thing. He's saying there's forgiveness for sins. He's faithful and just to forgive every confessed sin. But he's also writing this to make this clear. I'm writing this so that you don't sin. I didn't just introduce this, this topic of this supernatural kind of forgiveness so that you can just stop worrying and being like, great, because I'm really good at sinning. So it's nice to know that all those are forgiven. He's like, that is not why I wrote this letter. Please keep reading. Please keep reading. I'm writing these things so that you do not sin. So he brings up this beautiful, faithful, righteous forgiveness of Christ just so that you can go out and, and see sin for what it is and completely avoid it. <laughs> he brings up the forgiveness of Christ so that you can sin less. Now, don't you think that's an interesting argument? Maybe one that you wouldn't have come up with on your own? It's not a surprising reason to write a letter. I'm not saying that. Of course we should sin less. Paul writes lots of letters trying to convince the church to do less bad things. Corinthians. You know? Of course we know we should not sin. That's not a big surprise for John to tell the church, you guys should probably stop sinning. Yeah, we, we get it. But it seems that having this verse saying, the reason I'm writing to you is so that you do not sin. And you see that verse comes sandwiched between the end of chapter 1, which promises forgiveness for confessed sins. And then verse 2, which says, If you sin, you have an advocate before the Father. It is these things that John is expecting to have a powerful effect on the sinful practices of those in the church. And do you know what they do? They really, really do. It's backwards from legalism, that's for sure. It's something that makes sense. Uh, it, it's something that makes sense. Uh, sorry, no sense to our, our works-based sinful minds. You know, but this is John's argument. He's thinking to himself, what could I write to these people to get them to see sin for the destructive force that it is? To get them to stop sinning? Should I, should I just talk about hell a whole lot? That'll probably work, right? I mean, I think so. But no, that's not what he does, though John does talk about darkness a whole lot. 
The main thrust of his argument is this. Jesus forgives your sins. Jesus is your defense in heaven, even if you sin now. Jesus is your sacrificial lamb. We'll get to that word propitiation there in a second. Knowing these truths, I'm writing these things. Why? To make you sin more? No, because if you know these things and you see the love of God displayed for you and the forgiveness of your sins through the death of Christ, this is a powerful force against the temptations that plague your life. And we, we say, how is this so? Shouldn't he just be scolding them a whole bunch? Like, that's what I do. We know Romans chapter 2, the goodness of God leads us to repentance. Our actions flow from our identity. And it is when we know ourselves as loved of God, forgiven saints, that we begin to act upon that God-given identity. I think this can be seen in part uh, by the simple way that John begins this chapter. We know he's talking about sin. It's not fun. You know, he calls them liars again. He's like, if, you, if you're not going to sin, you're just, you're just a liar. That's, that's all you are. Uh, but look how he writes to these sinners. How does he address them? My little children. Come on, kids. My little children. John is showing a father's heart. More than that, actually, I believe he's showing the father's heart. He is coming alongside those he loves, these Christians he knows, and he's saying, kids, you know I love you. You know I love you. And of course, isn't this exactly the way that God the Father talks to us about our sin? Romans 5, verse 8, God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He comes to us in our sin and says, look, I see you, and this is what I'm doing about it. Can you see that I love you in your sin? The death of Christ is both a visual representation of the gravity of our sins. It's that bad. It's crucifixion bad. And it's the best demonstration of God's love for us sinners. This is how much God loves sinners. And if you've been in church for any length of time, you've realized that uh, the cross is somewhat central. Uh, it doesn't really matter uh, what the question is. The answer seems to be somewhere around the cross, right? This is intentional. <laughs> It's biblical, and we see it played out here. The question is, is sin serious? Is, is it really bad? Yes, look at the cross. And then you see how bad sin is. Well, is there any hope then? Is there any hope for us sinners? Yes, look at the cross. There's forgiveness in the cross. But why? Why? Because God loves you so much, or to use a more biblical phrase, for God loved, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What was that giving? It was sending him to die. How much does God love me? Look at the cross. But let's keep going. John is writing these things so that you don't sin. I could use some help in this area, so I hope I studied it well. So I know God loves me. I believe that. I believe Jesus forgives sins. But there's still sin in my life. Just like John talked about in chapter 1. When he's, and he doesn't say your sin, right? He says our sin. John says if we sin, because he knows, he knows who he is. So how do I deal with that? How do I deal with this? How do I combat those sins? Do I wear the hair shirt or beat myself with ropes? Or like what? I never see them for sale. Um, but no, you look to the cross and see the forgiveness of God that is there. You see the love of God that is there. And then you realize that it is the Father extending his hand to his own child, who he loves, saying, little children, let's talk about your sins. 
Let's talk about that sin. Now, I know we're not really making any headway into this passage yet, are we? But I want to remind you that this was already established as a characteristic of the Christian life, the walk, in chapter 1. John talks about the Christian life as a walk. Okay, It's a, it's a good, long walk with a good friend. He talks about fellowship a ton through this book. Okay, fellowship, which is the base, of course, for, for love, which in five chapters he mentions 40-some times. Right? And in chapter 1, he talked about confession, if we confess our sins. Confession is calling sin what it is and forsaking it. Confess it and forsake it. Confession is a means to this kind of fellowship with God. John assumes that a walk with God, this ongoing relationship with the lover of your soul, includes frank conversations about your sins. I mean, what else do you and God have to talk about, really? starts there. You talk about your sins. So John talks about sins and says this is actually this is actually a means to intimacy with God. This is not something that keeps you away from Christ. This is something that he points out in order to draw you in to his forgiving heart. So John talks about sin. Again, he's already introduced us to sin in chapter 1 as if we needed an introduction. And the fact he shared there was simply you do it. You've got it. You sin you're a sinner. He didn't really leave another option. In verse 8 of chapter 1, he said, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And then in verse 10, he says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. The sin has been presented to us as an unavoidable fact. This is how the rest of scripture presents sin and our own experience bears it out, doesn't it? Whether you're looking at the news or at the mirror, you know what sin is and that it is and that it's awful. So John, while not wanting anyone to have a shred of hope in their own righteousness or to be able to stand in on the lie that we are somehow without sin because of our good ideas or something, he also does not want to leave any of his little children without hope. And again, this is where 1 John 1, 9 came in. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Forgiveness is real. Forgiveness is available. Forgiveness is in line with God's faithfulness and his justice. And then in the second half of verse 1 of chapter 2, he says this, And if, it, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. There's different kinds of the word if in Greek is one of the few things I remember from all the Greek that I've tried to learn is there's a few different ifs and some of the ifs are senses <laughs> this is one of those this should read if anyone sins or since anyone sins essentially like you're, you're gonna sin we have an advocate with the father Jesus Christ the righteous this is how he's gonna keep people from sinning this is his message that's gonna keep your hand from what it shouldn't touch by knowing Jesus and his steadfast mercy. This term advocate makes sense in the scene of a heavenly courtroom. God is often called the judge. Satan is called the accuser of the brethren in Revelation. Uh, the word Satan actually means accuser. Um, Jesus here is, is called the advocate. You've got the whole scene in which you are quite obviously the defendant sweating bullets. Right? And at first, this may, it may appear that you don't have a chance because even though Satan is a liar and he is the father of lies, he doesn't actually need to make anything up in bringing up charges against you, does he? He can tell the truth. You're guilty. 
But Jesus is your advocate before the judge, and he can declare you forgiven. So you can say the fine of this, he, he can say the fine uh, for this criminal has been paid. The punishment has already been doled out in this courtroom scene. Jesus can say the words he spoke from the cross. It is finished. Everyone go home. And, and this is something that he does for your sin today. The once and for all salvation that was purchased on the cross is being applied to your life today in heaven. Jesus says today they are innocent. He is innocent. She is innocent. How in the world can he say that? He knows your sins better than you do. Well, verse 2 tells us. It says, And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now, here's your theology word for the day. World. No, I'm kidding. It's propitiation, obviously. <laughs> it's definitely worth the price of admission right there uh, the, the word itself shows up only four times in the New Testament um, but it is possibly the best one word summary of the gospel and I'm not exaggerating propitiation is the death of, of someone for our sins it's the death of Jesus Christ for our sins. This word means reconciliation between, and God, between God and man because of blood. It, propitiation is the changing of a judgment seat into a mercy seat. In fact, in translating the Hebrew to the Greek to the English and everything, the uh, mercy seat in Hebrews is actually the, the word propitiation in the book of Hebrews. The connection is important. The mercy seat, that's a real piece of furniture. The mercy seat is the place on the Ark of the Covenant between the cherubim where the presence of God would dwell. Uh, golden angels stare at this one spot. Once a year, a lamb would take the sins of the nation. Its blood would be brought by the high priest into the Holy of Holies and blood would be placed on the place of propitiation. A judgment seat becomes a mercy seat. Because of this blood, God could dwell with his people. Fellowship, major theme in 1 John, you'll remember, it depends on blood. It always has, ever since Eden. But this word propitiation isn't just sacrifice. Otherwise, that word would be used. Propitiation assumes a holy God with very high standards. Sinful offenders with big mistakes. And the reconciliation of the two by the just punishment of sin and the forgiveness of the sinner. All that's packed into that word propitiation. That's propitiation. And this propitiation was exactly what was promised by John the Baptist when he saw Jesus and he said in John 1, 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, the Lamb of God, who John describes as a lamb slain before the foundation of the world, is our reconciler, our propitiation. This ministry of Christ is seen right there at the altar of the cross where the blood was spilt. What did Jesus say from the cross? He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This moment describes what Paul wrote about in 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For he made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin." to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is what Martin Luther called the great exchange. Christ becoming sin and experiencing the rejection, the forsaking, the punishment, the wrath of God 
But that's not all Jesus said from the cross, as you know, because death is not all of propitiation. He also said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. That's propitiation. Christ has become our forgiveness. This is what we mean when we say he died for us. He died for the forgiveness of our sins to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and he can do that from the cross. Father, forgive them. And John is establishing you know, the church, his children, in this fact, Jesus died, you are forgiven. He is saying, if you sin, you have a crucified, resurrected Savior who has already paid in full the, the, the price that your crimes demand, and he says, you're good. And, and this, of course, is what Jesus says, said next on the cross, right? He said, it is finished. That's propitiation. Christ's propitiation is, a not, uh, is not a, a stopgap measure. The crucifixion was not accomplished half-heartedly. It was the whole heart of the Father on display, showing his love for you. Now there's the second half of verse 2 that deserves some explaining. John says that Jesus is the propitiation for us and for the whole world. That sounds a bit like universalism, doesn't it? Doesn't that you know raise your hackle, some of you? theologically minded folk uh, like okay if Jesus is the propitiation for the whole world everyone's going to heaven everyone gets saved all roads lead to Rome whatever is that what he's saying not quite uh, if he was that would create a big problem since the rest of scripture is pretty clear about drawing some lines making a division between those who are saved and those who are unsaved there are those who have grace on them and those who have wrath on them children of wrath Paul calls us <laughs> There's sheep and then there's goats. There is a lake of fire and there will be those who are cast into it. And Jesus spoke about hell more than any other person in the Bible. So it would be a stretch to read this verse and say, great, everyone's in. Let's go home. Uh, you know, it's, it's helpful to know that Paul says actually the same thing that John does here, but adds to it. He clarifies a little bit. Paul, who d definitely has a theology that includes a day of judgment, who definitely understood uh, the fallenness of man and our need for salvation that is through faith alone, still says this about Jesus in 1 Timothy 4.10. This is Paul writing. He says, For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. There are a couple of ways to make sense of this. If you are breathing alive on the world that God has made, in a body that he designed and knit together in your mother's womb. And God has still not sent a lightning bolt to take care of you or opened a path beneath you and the earth, you know, divides and you fall in. You are experiencing the mercy of God Amen. right now. Amen. If you have ever tasted ice cream, you have experienced the mercy of God. These are called common graces. Ice cream being the chief among them. He is the savior of the world in one way by simply allowing it to experience the grace of existence you say you know god cannot look at sin sin must be punished and it's like well then why hasn't it yet grace upon grace upon grace upon grace the reason why you know the reason why the flood only happened once is actually because of the cross Okay, The bow in heaven pointed towards God is him saying, I'm wounding myself so you guys can live. 
I'm letting you continue even in your sins. God has been saving the world since Eden. Since before, again, the lamb was slain when? Before the foundation of the world. God can look on this sinful world because of the propitiation of the blood of Christ shed on the cross. Now, the other way you need to look at these verses that call Jesus the Savior of all men, the propitiation for all the world, is simply in an accounting way. Now, you know, count on your fingers here. You don't have enough fingers for this math problem, but you can start. Was Jesus' blood enough to forgive every sin that was ever committed? Yes. 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 Was the cross sufficient for all sinners? Yes. Now, Luther... Martin Luther, he saw this verse in 1 John, and he said this. He says, it is a patent fact that thou too art part of the whole world, so that thine heart cannot deceive itself and think, the Lord died for Peter and Paul, but not for me. And this is a correct reading. Christ is the Savior of the world. You can go to every person you've ever met and say, without running through theological loopholes or, or crossing your fingers behind your back, Jesus loves you so much he died for you. And you can tell them that even if they spit in your face and his and reject it, even if they would rather take the punishment of God on themselves than let it be on Christ, you can still say to them, Christ loved you so much, he died for your sins. That's what it means when we say that Christ is the propitiation for all men, for all the world. Now take a look at verse 3. We'll actually read um, 3 through 6 here. It says, Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments, he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. So he's moving on now and he, he's saying, you know, forgiveness is there. It's real. It's yours for the taking and you need it. And as you walk with Christ in confession, recognizing sin for what it is and forsaking it, as you walk with Christ, you, you ought to be also walking like Christ. There's more to forgiveness than just the accounting part. There's new life. Now, obviously, we're not giving every verse equal time here since I gave the space between you know, verse 1 in the last chapter, the most time. Um, but we'll take these verse as, verses as a chunk. The simple meaning of these verses is this. Being with Jesus will change you. The terms so dear to John, like a walk, you know, walking with Jesus, and abide, that is making your home with Jesus. These remind us that our Christian life, our salvation, is our relationship with Jesus. It is our proximity to our Savior. That's salvation. So, so John's point here, just like in chapter one, when he said, "If you walk in darkness, and you say you have no, and you say you have fellowship with God, yeah, you're a liar." Right. Now he's saying, "Well, if you walk with God, who is light, we saw that in chapter one, right? If you walk with God, it is absolutely impossible for you to remain unchanged. Light overcomes darkness." So that's what John is saying. Again, he's not saying unless you keep all the rules, you're not even saved, man. Like that's not his message. That's just not the case. Why would you need an advocate? Why would you need propitiation? He's not talking about perfection. He's talking about progress, and that's real. You can't walk with Jesus and not be changed. And you may say, well, I'm, I'm looking, doing some inventory here, and there's still a lot that needs changing. Yeah, that's why you're still walking with him. Right. 
You know, use this for self-examination. If you're no different now than when you were, when, you know, before you knew Jesus, you might not have met Jesus. That's a very real possibility. You might just have an imaginary friend, and that's sad. Okay, if you're not, if you're not walking with him, and if your walk doesn't look like you're walking like him, you have some examining to do. You do. But, you know, maybe, maybe you, you know about him, sure. Maybe you've met a long time ago. Uh, you met him a long time ago, but do you know him? Again, the way John talks about knowing God is walking with him. So, so ask yourself that. Are you walking with Christ? Picture every part of your life, your work, your home life, your, your habits, uh, the things you think about, the things you dream about, and your friends and your family and your relationships and what you say to them and how you say it to them, which is more important, and how you treat them. And picture all those things as things along a pathway there are things and people that you encounter on your walk with the Lord. Is he with you in any of those things? Or are you just walking in the dark? Is he with you in your, in your thought life, in your day-to-day -day routines? There are places, of course, where it will be shown whether or not you keep the commandments of the Lord. Commands like, love the Lord your God. Commands from the Psalms, like, hope in the Lord. Commands from Paul, like, be anxious for nothing. And, and whatever things are true, noble, just, pure, lovely, of good report, virtuous, praiseworthy, think on those things. Well, do you? This is illuminating virtues of Christ there. This is the stuff of your everyday walk. Examine yourself and examine your relationships. His commandment is love one another. You can't do that alone because you're not one another. Keeping his commandments demand community. So are you showing the love of Christ? The one who says, I know God. Yeah, he and I, we're like this. We're close. But is then unloving, unkind, unchristlike. This is the person who says, I walk in the light while they're still doing things in the dark and they're, they're lying to themselves. Unfortunately, they are also lying to plenty of others too. And this reputation of hypocrite, one who says they know God but don't care about what he says and don't try to look like him in any way, that is a reputation that the world knows and has grabbed onto. And this is nothing new. Paul warned elders in the church. He said, wolves will come. People will always be in the church who, who want to say, I know God, and then they, they want to say, I know the light, but the, the fruit shows the quality of the root. <laughs> and John sums it up very nicely here with, with what, he, what should be extremely obvious to every one of you, all of us. Verse 6, he says, He who abides, he who says he abides in him, ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Like, you know this, right? We all know this. You know that you're supposed to look like Jesus, right? You know that's what Christian means, little Christ. You are to love people, teach people, wash feet, even lay down your life for other people. These are all commands of Christ. And if you can't say, I'm sorry, you cannot say, no if about it, you cannot say, I know God, while well, you're not walking with them because you can't get to know someone without being with them. And you can't be with God without being changed. Now, this, this cuts to the heart in more ways than one. There is, there's the warning against hypocrisy, of course. There's the warning against those who say one thing and live another way. And there's, there's John's apostolic authority saying, those guys who, who, uh, whose lives aren't being modeled after Christ, you know, they don't know Christ. And 
there's the challenge for each of us to examine ourselves in this light, of course. But there's another way this passage hits that I can't ignore. In, um, in verse 5, you know, he says, Whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. Knowing God and keeping his commandments are tied together here. They're joined at the hip. And John says, if you don't keep his commandments, you don't know him. But then the natural follow-up is this. If you don't keep his, com his commandments, you, you won't know him. You won't. Because this is how you actually get to know God. You walk with him. You be about your father's business. Listen, you've been warned about the necessity of a changed life, of keeping commandments, of modeling your life after Christ, walking like he walked. You've got to do that. But here's the next thing, and I'm giving, I'm giving it to believers. If you ignore the commandments of Christ, Christ will not be made known to you. You won't know who you're worshiping. You won't know who you say you know. Now, isn't knowing Jesus kind of what this whole thing is about? Like, hopefully, isn't, isn't knowing Christ like part of the reason you even, you know, have a faith, come to church, read your Bibles? You want to know Christ. I mean, this is what Paul said. He says, I'm laying it all down that I may know God. Fellowship with the Son, walking in the light. That's what this whole message is about. Yes. So how do you get to know Jesus? What does walking side by side with Christ look like? It looks like obedience. It looks like washing feet because that's what Jesus says. That's where he is. You got to be where he is if you want to get to know him. It looks like keeping his commandments. Keeping the commandments is not just the evidence of a walk. And it's certainly not the requirement for salvation by any means. You know, the works that show the faith, like we see in James. We've talked about that before. But keeping the commandment of Jesus for the Christian who is saved by grace is a means of grace. Those commandments, obeying Christ and walking with him, is a means of grace. It is a method of God pouring out his love into you, perfecting the love of God in you. And you're like, I want to be, be perfect. Man, I want to have the love of God in my heart. I want to look like Jesus. Well, do, do his stuff. Be about your father's business. Do the things Jesus tells you to do. Because it is through those things that he actually shows you what he's really like. And it's not like the carrot that's dangling. It says, okay, once you go and you feed 10 homeless people and pray 16 Hail Marys, you know, and then like then I'll then I'll show you the next card and you'll you'll see something about me. It's not like that. This is a relationship. It's a walk. It's a home. You learn about people when you do the stuff with them that they like doing. So you keep his commandments because Jesus is already loving people. He's already serving people. He's already teaching people. And so when you get in line to do those things, you're with Christ and he reveals himself to you. Whenever the question, how can I draw closer to God, comes up, you know, there will be someone like me saying the Sunday school answers, which are good and necessary. That's why I'm telling you them now. Read your Bible and pray. Those are spiritual disciplines that are necessary. Don't think for a second that I'm downplaying those disciplines in the least. But those aren't the only or even the main commandments that Jesus gives, are they? What are the main commandments? Love God. Love people. What was the one commandment that Jesus left the disciples with? Love even as I have loved you. Do you really want to get to know Jesus and walk with him and see him and know him? Then obey him. His commandments to you, his callings to you, they're invitations. They're invitations to serve people with him. When you are washing feet, you are where Jesus 
is, when you feed the hungry, when you give to the poor, you are where Jesus is. Even Jesus says, when you did this to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Well, I want to get to where Jesus is, so where do I go? Well, find someone hungry. That's where Jesus is. When you forgive and you have mercy on those who have wronged you, you are where Jesus is because he's already intent on forgiving them. Forgiving is kind of his thing. Do you see how this works? You know, the one who doesn't keep the commandments of Jesus can't know him because they're not with him. They're not walking with him. There will be times in your walk. This has probably happened many, many times in your walk when your devotional life is dry. When you read the scriptures and you say, I'm not getting anything out of this, man. It's like chewing dust. What is this? And there may be a few reasons for this, but one very real possibility is simply that you have been entrusted with so many of these invitations already. And Jesus has said, come be with me serving these people. Come be with me by obeying what I've told you to do already. He's entrusted you with so much already, so many open doors, so many invitations, so many commands. He's already shown you, oh man, what is good. And it doesn't seem like you're interested in doing any of those things. If you walk with Jesus, you will be changed. You will make progress. Progress looks like obedience. If you stop walking, just stand still. Don't go on with Jesus anymore. Don't look to see what he wants you to do in those things that are on your mind. Or what's more serious, you don't go to him to find out what's on his mind. Then you're not going to be getting to know him anymore. You won't be growing. You won't be learning. And if we take this passage seriously, then we see that because of our advocate before the Father, we're already in. Guys, we're already in. The forgiveness has been done. Forgiveness is there. It's not something you have to earn or work your way around. It's just something you have to ask for. Confess the sin, receive the forgiveness. And this walking in the light is walking in continual forgiveness. Walking with Jesus, then we'll be walking like Jesus. And this, this truth cuts both ways, so take it however you need it. If your life is unchanged since before you've met Jesus, consider whether or not you've met Jesus. Uh, the one who says, I know God, but doesn't do what he says, he's, he's a liar. Realize the power of your advocate. Confess your sins to the one who forgives. But if you've been on the walk and you've seen progress, well, praise the <laughs> Lord for that. Um, but if it, maybe it's like things have stopped, things have gone stagnant, consider this. You can't ignore what God says he wants you to do and then assume that the two of you are walking together and growing together. You can't just assume that. Let us then commit ourselves to our advocate, recognizing that the forgiveness is there for all confessed sins and knowing that the call to obedience is a call to fellowship with Christ. And this is something that we have been called to. You have been invited to live your life, even beyond this life, in the presence of Christ, getting to know him, learning him, le learning how he does things, doing his work, uh, learning about his father. You've been called to that life. And, and the way that love of God is perfected in you is through his commandments, which we'll get into next week. Commandments are love each other. That's it, man. Um, but let's pray. Let's pray now. And um, we'll be on our way.
Jesus, you are good. You are good to invite us into your presence, into your family. You are good to invite us to work. God, you don't, it doesn't seem like you want anyone on the bench. Um, there's, there's no one you don't want to invite into your work. You are a good, good father. Lord, I, I pray that this word, your word, uh, would sink deep in each heart. I pray that we would have these, um, all these truths and balance the seriousness of sin and the power of Christ to forgive it. I pray that we would uh, have this correct attitude towards our own sin sandwiched between this reality of forgiveness and our advocate of your cleansing power, cleansing us from all unrighteousness. And in light of that, God, in light of how well you save, of how well you save us and seeing to, that you have saved to the uttermost. And in light of that, Lord, I pray that in each one of us would be a hunger and thirst for righteousness that we set our hands to. Um, that we would have a hunger and thirst for obedience, for active faith that shows itself in works. Some of this is difficult to understand. I pray that your Holy Spirit would help us. Um, and then once you've helped us understand some things, uh, help us walk in the light as you are in the light so we can have fellowship. Bless your church in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Why don't you stand up?